Our guest today is John Shulman. John is one of the co-founders of OpenAI and the lead architect of ChatGPT. Before leading the charge on ChatGPT, the world's most widely used large language model, John was one of the early pioneers of deep reinforcement learning. Having invented the widely used proximal policy optimization algorithm, also known as PPO, which is actually part of the ChatGPT training. He also invented Trust Region Policy Optimization, or TRPO. He was a key contributor to OpenAI Gym, OpenAI Baselines, Stable Baselines, and to many of the modern deep learning era meta-learning algorithms. Before co-founding OpenAI, John was actually a PhD student in my lab at Berkeley, which is a time I still very much treasure. John, so great to have you here. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Peter. So glad we get to catch up in, in this format here. Now, John, before diving into our conversation, I'd like to quickly thank our podcast sponsors, Index Ventures and Wits and Biases. Index Ventures is a venture capital firm that invests in exceptional entrepreneurs across all stages, from seed to IPO. With offices in San Francisco, New York, and London, the firm backs founders across a variety of verticals, including AI, SaaS, fintech, security, gaming, and consumer. On a personal note, Index is an investor in Covariant, and I couldn't recommend them any higher. Weights and Biases is an ML ops platform that helps you train better models faster with experiment tracking, model and dataset versioning, and model management. They're used by OpenAI, NVIDIA, and almost every lab releasing a large model. In fact, many, if not all of my students at Berkeley and colleagues at Covariant are big users of Weights and Biases. John, you were at the center of the biggest AI release in recent history, many would say ever, the release of ChatGPT, which has made literally everyone talk about AI, in fact, talk with AI, just to make sure we're all level here. What is ChatGPT? ChatGPT is a chatbot that's on a web app. You can visit it on chat.openai.com. It's a language model, so it's a model that generates text. I think the the reason it really uh, took off is because even though there had been language models out there before. This one was easy to use because you just talk to it like you would talk to a person. And it was above some threshold of smartness that made it actually useful for a lot of tasks. Like um, if someone is curious about some random knowledge topic or they want help writing, it's useful for a lot of that. I've played with it quite a bit, John, and I'm, I'm always impressed. The other day, I had to give a talk to a company and I first asked it to... Uh, describing one one paragraph what the company is and it described it and then I asked it can you now describe the company again but uh, using Snoop Dogg rap style to describe it and it just did it right there and for sure Snoop Dogg never did any raps about that company and it just nailed it it's I mean it, it's really mind-blowing the way it can recompose things how, how is something like this even built yeah so there are several uh, steps in the process of training this model so first of all, first you start with the pre-trained language model. And the way this this works is you take you just train the model to imitate a lot of human written text. So we want to basically train a model to use language like humans. And to do that, you need to find a lot of text. And in practice, uh, what we do is we find lots of text on the internet and we train the model to produce text that looks like that. 
and in practice what what's going on is it's predicting next word given previous words. So you train on a lot of this and you've got your pre-trained language model, but now all it knows how to do is generate random text from the internet. And some of this is the kind of behavior you want and some of it isn't. So then we need to fine tune it to have more consistent behavior and professional behavior. So that's where we do this uh, second fine tuning step. Um, and in particular, we do RL for human feedback. And in the pipeline there, we have a few steps where first we do a little supervised learning where we train it on some very high quality responses written by humans we've hired. And then, then we train, um, then we actually do RL to improve it further, where we train a reward model that can recognize good responses. And then we do RL with that reward model. You're doing RL with the reward model, meaning that the bot is eventually generating text and getting rated by the reward and tries to maximize that reward. Is it possible that in principle, just like in, in AlphaGo, let's say that you could generate a chatbot that is strictly superior at generating text than any human has ever been? Oh yeah, definitely. I'd say the models are already superhuman in some ways and obviously not others. Well, certainly if you count speed as a capability, they're a lot faster than humans at writing poems and so forth or, or writing Snoop Dogg-like lyrics. I'd say overall, there's not a single scaler that measures the smartness of the model and they're su superhuman in some ways, like the ability, like they're vast breadth of knowledge and their ability to write like write in all these different styles uh, and follow the patterns very well. And then they're like worse than humans in a lot of other ways. In which ways do you think they're still not so good? Let's see. So certainly there are a lot of tasks like mathematical reasoning where they're not uh, nearly as good as skilled humans. Let's say they're, uh, if you want them to do a long running task, even if you prompt them very carefully, you tell them what you want them to do and tell them they can take multiple steps. They often uh, will get stuck in the middle and aren't very good at recovering. Now, to be fair, a lot of humans take a while too before they become good at math. In fact, some humans, you know, never truly get to the top level of math. Most people don't get to the top level of the smartest humans in, in mathematics, right? Um, oh, yeah, so that's do you right. think there might, be a, there might be a path that this is just the beginning, but it could keep getting better at things like math? Oh yeah, I think um, the models are going to keep getting better. And it's even, it's hard to describe exactly what the what the limitations are or the fundamental limitations. So certainly there are limitations right now, like the models don't have a lot of the actuators that we have, like they can't, they can just write out a bunch, write out text, they can't do anything. But those are very superficial limitations. So once you overcome those, it's it's not clear what the fundamental blockers are. I don't think the models are smart enough to to do like really high quality creative thought in math and the sciences. And yeah, so I think that's a ways that's a, a bit further off, but um, it's not clear exactly how how long that's going to take or how that's going to play out. Now, John, you mentioned that language models have existed before, but ChatGPT somehow exceeded its threshold of people just all of a sudden liking. To interact with it, which wasn't as much the case with any of the previous models. When you're working on ChatGPT and its predecessor, InstructGPT, bringing in the reinforcement learning component, did you think that was going to happen? Was that what you had in mind? Or was it just like, oh, this might be an improvement? And we'll, well, what was your thinking before it all took off? Well, I did think that the chat UI was a lot easier to use than what people had before. So I, I thought there was a lot of potential there, even with a pretty minimal product. 
that just um, this would be an intuitive form factor. I, yeah, I, I definitely didn't uh, anticipate how popular it would get. I thought it would just be, it would kind of have a niche appeal. And you can use uh, the Instruct GPT model to make a chatbot. Like if you just give it the right prompt, you can make it tell it to behave like a chatbot and you'll get something decent. And it would have been, at the time we released ChatGPT, uh, you would have gotten something that was close to as good, not quite as good. Maybe like we've, uh, like we trained ChatGPT to be a little more self-aware and understand its limitations and um, to hallucinate less. Whereas the um, the previous instruct models were more designed for continuing text and well, doing writing tasks where uh, that kind of involved hallucination, where that's kind of a feature. I think it was a little better than what you could have created before, but not dramatically better. So, so I was surprised that it blew up as much as it did. As has been blowing up and used so widely, are there any uses that you've seen of ChatGPT that kind of surprised you or got you excited? Just fun things that you you've seen people do. Well, I always I see that people are using it in lots of different ways to get value. I mean, a lot of people who this is an obvious use case, but people who aren't native English speakers or need help writing in the right tone uh, will use will use it a lot for just kind of yeah for writing help. So that's an obvious use case for the. Like even the free less smart models, like not, you don't need GPT-4 for that, which is the more powerful model that you have to pay for. So yeah, writing help is an obviously uh, obvious one. I see some creative use cases, like people will like use it to write bedtime stories for their kids or to have, I don't know, people will like just have fun with it. Yeah. You can use it to come up with conversation starters. I've seen people, people do that. I've gotten, uh, I've used it for travel advice and advice on what kind of activities to do, fun activities. And I'm seeing my students use it all the time for their programming that they're doing, even though that's not English text in the strict the sense of the of English, it seems to be really good at programming also. Oh yeah. Actually the programming use case is kind of the one that we like I was using and and my colleagues were using. So that's kind of the one that we really dog fooded and that that was a big early motivator. Oh yeah. I'd say that uh, just seeing people uh, how much it helps non experts do programming has been really, really exciting. Like people people who haven't really um, studied programming, but they can just prompt the model to write them a script. And people have been, I've seen people do some very complicated things, even though they really never formally learned programming and uh, previously didn't think they were capable of it. That's so super exciting. I've seen it. You've alluded to this notion of hallucinations a couple of times, John, that ChatGPT could have hallucinations. What are they? And do you have any thoughts on how to maybe avoid having such hallucinations in the model? Yeah, so hallucinations are just where the model starts making things up. It outputs some plausible sounding text, which uh, makes up facts or numbers or citations. And the reason you get this is, well, if we're allowed to, uh, sometimes it's easier to understand the model by saying it, it has agency in some way. So we could say that the model cares more about sounding right or sounding like writing in, in the right style than actually being correct. And that's obviously true if you think about the maximum likelihood objective where you're just trying to output likely uh, words. In that objective, there is some small component where it's trying to output correct things, but there's a much stronger tendency to just output something that like is in the right style or sounds like a sounds like an answer. 
If you have a model that's kind of trained in a naive way, it's going to hallucinate a lot. With the fine tuning we do with our awesome human feedback, we cut that down um, a large amount. We still don't completely get rid of it. So uh, the models do hallucinate. Our free tier model hallucinates a decent amount, especially if you start asking it for citations and that sort of thing. It'll just make something up. The better model based on GPD-4 doesn't hallucinate nearly as much, but it'll still occasionally do it, especially if you yeah if you ask it for uh, certain kinds of specifics that it doesn't have and where it has hasn't been trained to to be aware of this limitation, you're saying it hasn't been trained to be aware of this limitation, which seems to suggest that there is a way to train it to be aware of that. How does that work? How do you make it aware of such limitations? We can sometimes train the models to be aware of a specific limitation. So, for example, like early versions of our models had no idea what their capabilities were. So you would ask it, uh, can you send an email to so-and-so? And it would say, uh, yes, I just sent that email. Because that's kind of what a helpful, you might imagine a helpful chatbot would sound like. So, so then we went and just trained it like with this specific type of query. And we trained it to say, no, I can't send emails. You can do a, a sort of piecemeal process where you teach the model specific limitations that it doesn't have. And then the model will kind of generalize. I'd say the models, and, and I would say GPD-4, since it's a smart, very smart model, it does generalize quite well. So if you teach it a few things that it can't do, it'll uh, infer lots of other things that it probably can't do. But it doesn't do this perfectly. For example, for something like citations, the model does actually have a lot of knowledge about what's in specific books and famous papers and so on. So if you ask it for a citation, sometimes it actually gives you correct answers. I mean, it gives you correct ones, and that's rated as useful. So when we when we do our rating process, like obviously it's better for it to give the answer than to not give it. So the model thinks it can sometimes give citations, which is correct, but it doesn't quite have a good internal feeling of how confident it is about these citations. Sometimes it'll just make them up, and I guess it doesn't. It probably doesn't know that it made them up, or or it actually might know that. So sometimes you can ask it, are you sure about that? And it'll say, no, sorry, I made that up. Yeah, I guess we don't totally understand the general, how all these uh, abilities generalize and how the like teaching about the limitations generalizes. So, so that's definitely an interesting topic for the research. When you talk about bringing in citations, it seems like an alternative instead of having the model ahead of time read the entire internet, so to say, and then try to still answer with citations is to let it retrieve things on the fly. What are your thoughts on the trade-offs between models that use retrieval versus models that have everything trained into their weights? Yeah, I think there's a place for both approaches and and we're doing that right now. So we have in ChatGPT we have a browsing model, which is actually not we recently had to temporarily take it down, but it'll be back. Uh, so we have a model that can look things up on the web, but the default model doesn't. I think a mo models can store a huge amount of information in their weights and including very detailed factual knowledge. And if you have information in the weights, the model can use it in a very flexible way. So it can make connections between things. Or if you ask a question about something that's vaguely related, it might make a connection that would be hard to like, it would be hard to make that connection with a search query, but by issuing the search query that would make this connection. So. So I think having information in the weights is ultimately going to lead to smarter and more flexible behavior, but there are a couple of big advantages to also being able to do retrieval. So first of all, you have access to real-time information. You have access to more detail than what you'd be able to cram into the weight. And last of all, it's also more checkable by a human. So I think it's it's extremely important for uh, liable, like to make 
these model outputs checkable, both as part of the training process and as part of the like test time use cases. Because at training time, when we have humans looking at the outputs and rating them, like the models have such a big breadth of knowledge that the people doing the rating might not know enough about the subject to really assess the answer. So if the model can provide citations, like that makes it a lot easier to get to do accurate supervision. That's really important. But then also as an end user, being able to check what the language model uh, output it is extremely useful for obvious reasons because they do sometimes hallucinate. So if you can just make its output verifiable, that's obviously, that's going to be useful, especially if it's a high stakes setting, like uh, say medicine. Will you agree, John? Now, in terms of the technology underneath, as I understand it, a lot of the large language model training regime does single epoch training, meaning that you just go through your training data once, not multiple times. Isn't it then surprising that it can remember those specific things from just one pass. Do you have any intuition how in one pass over the data it has gotten just one gradient step on that one specific citation and it somehow stores it? Seems surprising to me. I'm not saying it's not true. It's, I'm just very surprised by it. Uh, yeah, it is uh, surprising how well these language models absorb information from the source, from the pre-training data. I'd say that any given fact will appear in many different documents on the internet. And if it's only in one document, uh, the model probably won't be able to recall it, or at least current models. But it's an interesting question how many times the model has to see the fact to really internalize it. And I would guess that's somewhere in the tens, but it's hard to say for sure. Talk about internet and data. Obviously, these models are trained on a lot of data. And recently, your colleague, Sam Altman, mentioned that we might be running out of gas as a community in terms of as we keep scaling these models, they might not keep getting better. Not enough opportunity ahead in terms of data and model scaling. What do you think about that? Definitely the existing um, methods of data and model scaling might peter out after a while, or at least um, the improvements might be, say, logarithmic in uh, the data set and data set sizes and training compute, you're sort of hitting diminishing returns. But I'd say there's plenty more to do and I don't see things uh, plateauing anytime soon. One of the things that is happening right now in the field is that there's, of course, many competitor models being released too. It's it's not just ChatGPT, there's many others, including many open source ones. I'm curious what you think is the role of closed source versus open source releases are they both important? Is one right versus wrong? What is your thinking? Yeah. Um, and in fact, the, uh, Lana 2 is released today. So that's a timely question. Well, I think the open source models are certainly really good for research, like for, um, say, academic researchers to be able to do experiments where they're fine-tuning the models and making architecture changes and so on, and try to do the kind of, the kind of work we're doing at OpenAI, like trying to improve RL from human feedback. So having a really strong open source model makes that possible. So I think that's really valuable. I mean, the closed source models are currently better, or at least the best models that are out there are better. And I think it would be hard to incentivize models to get really good without there being some like some commercial, well, without it being um, like a, a closed model that, yeah, for obvious reasons. Yeah, I would expect to see the closed models, like the best models to be closed models. Yeah, I think the, the open ones are really good for research and I expect them to also be good for a lot of commercial uses as well, where people figure out how to fine-tune them on their uh, specific data or fine-tune them in some way that's not currently enabled by the existing commercial providers. Is that maybe, I mean, are you tying it back effectively to the resources required to have the high-quality data 
and the high amounts of compute and that it might be very hard to get access to those resources if you're going to build an open source. Yeah, that's right. Uh, like it's hard to yeah, incentivize uh, putting that, like making that big of an investment in an open source model that you can't make money off of. So I wouldn't expect to see the state of the art models be open source, but I think they do have great, great value. Yeah. For they create a public good of sorts. I mean, they might also uh, like, yeah, there's also some uh, safety concern or there's some concerns that they might also create a public bad. Like if people are using these models to do spam, to do like super large scale spam that wouldn't be allowed by API providers. So I think that's going to be a problem at some point. And then uh, maybe the companies like Meta who are producing open source models will have to think twice about it, but I uh, will see how that plays out. When you think about large language models today, John, they obviously have all kinds of capabilities already. They have some some limitations also. Do you see the future of getting to the next level as doing more of the same in some sense, like keep curating text data with you know human feedback? Or do you think something else needs to be brought in? Just to put something out there, imagine the model maybe has access to videos, to watch videos to better understand what the physical world is like. Or maybe it has access to a simulator and can try out what the physical world feels like in some sense. Or could those things take it to the next level? Or does that seem not so relevant compared to just pumping in more data of the current type? Oh, yeah. I think adding new modalities, like the ability to perceive video, is going to add a lot. So if we are in some regime where we're getting diminishing returns from scaling up the existing data, uh, like adding a new modality allows the model to, well, it allows it to access a lot of knowledge that it wouldn't get in text form and also to potentially be able to act in ways that the pure language model wouldn't. So for example, well, you can watch, I mean, anything that involves interacting with the physical world is going to benefit a lot from perceiving video. And well, actually even interacting with computer screens, just because all software is designed for humans. So if you can just view the pixels and perceive the video, then you can use all sorts of existing software or help people use that software. So I think just giving the model new, the ability to have new, new affordances and interact with new things is going to add a lot to their effective capabilities. Yeah, I think there's also a lot more in the pure language model world beyond scaling up the existing stuff. I still think we have a long way to go in fine-tuning the models in a smarter way. Like I think the RL for human feedback pipeline has a lot of room for improvement. In particular, I'd say a big area is using the models to help grade themselves instead of just like training this reward model on human data. Now that reminds me of things like GANs where, you know, one model is trained the other model to generate more realistic text in this case, but it would be images in the original GAN scenario and start sounding very similar to that. Going to the, the fine-tuning, John, it has been talk that the fine-tuning stage might reduce the generalization ability and the breadth of knowledge the model is still able to expose. How would that, do you even think that's true? And if so, how would that happen? It's definitely true that when you fine-tune the models, you reduce the variety of styles and types of content they're going to output. And uh, we definitely um, do get what's uh, called mode collapse or entropy collapse, where in some cases the, the model will output a very um, a narrow set of answers or a single answer. So if you ask the model, tell me a joke, or if you ask ChatGPT, tell me a joke, it'll probably, it'll always tell you the same joke. I think it oscillates exa exactly which joke it tells oscillates a bit. Like there's one, like, why don't, scientists trust atoms because they make up everything uh, so there's like there, there's some uh, like silly jokes like that that the model uh, latches onto 
So anyway, you definitely get this kind of mode collapse effect. As for, I think there's also probably some degradation of the model's capabilities when you do fine tuning, just because when you do pre-training, it's with much bigger batches and uh, you're really um, making sure to like preserve all the capabilities on this huge variety of types of input. So and then when you fine tune the models, uh, you're only uh, seeing you have a much smaller data set. So it's possible that like you're losing some capabilities that weren't represented in your fine tuning data sets. And you're also like, there's just more noise in the fine tuning process. So you just degrade the model a little bit due to that noise. So I think there's a little bit of that. I think like we, we run uh, various benchmarks on the models and compare to the pre-trained base models and uh, try to make sure the abilities don't degrade too much. And I'm pretty sure they don't in the latest recipes, we they're not degrading that much, but yeah. And I want to talk more about your trajectory soon, but where we're currently at, the large language models dominate the conversation because they've had the biggest leap forward or multiple big leap forwards compared to any other domain. It's pretty much what everybody's talking about because of the big change in capabilities. Do you see anything else on the horizon where you say, well, maybe that or that area in AI could see a similarly big leap forward in the future, what would it be? I don't have a, like a specific area that I think is going to really take off. I think the language models are going to serve as a core that a lot of things are built on top of. I think probably other modalities will be built on top of language models. Like you'll have, you'll take the big language models and you'll add like vision and video and so on. And then maybe do things, then maybe, because um, I think language, the like a big advantage of language is it's very information dense. And so it's, and it's like very, uh, it doesn't have as much noise as other uh, types of data like video. So I think it's for a long time, the language is going to be a good way to soak up a lot of intelligence with a limited amount of compute. But then like there's transfer between language and other, other modalities. So I think you're going to see people having language plus video and so on. So for robotics, I would predict that actually robotics will eventually, people will be using some kind of multimodal model that is joint trained with language and like video and control. So I think that kind of thing, I think that's that's got to be in the future of AI. I'd say there are also areas uh, that are um, like totally orthogonal to what kind of model you're training that are going to rise in prominence. So I, I'd say this this idea of scalable, super, scalable oversight or uh, improving supervision quality is going to become more important. So the idea here is how can you use, how can you co collect data in uh, hard domains where it's even hard to get humans to produce high quality labels or high quality demonstrations? So how do we use model plus human together to create higher quality data than a human would be able to create and supervise models in domains that are really hard? So I think this is an important problem and probably it, it'll become more popular in the ML research world. The example that comes to my mind is then an AI that would do scientific research effectively, that would yeah. go maybe read biological data that humans don't really know how to read, like protein sequences, RNA, DNA sequences, and then look at experimental results and somehow combine it into new hypotheses or conclusions even that are very hard to, to come up with for humans. Yeah, I agree. I think that's a really exciting one. And there might be some fields like biology that are just too uh, complicated for humans. And maybe, yeah, maybe if we, uh, I mean, since AIs just, even if they're not smarter than humans, they can certainly do more work faster. So it could be that we can have them sift through a lot of complicated data from biology and figure something out. Yeah. 
I look forward to seeing that happen. Maybe, maybe we'll both be working on it in the future. Who knows? Now, one thing that stood out to me as I look at your career trajectory, John, is how you've moved across topics, right? You started in my lab and imitation learning robotics, then concluded reinforced learning would be key to make more progress. Then from there, of course, spent a lot of time on reinforcement at OpenAI and brought it into language models. I'm really curious about that trajectory. Let's maybe start with the latest and work our way back into the past. When did you decide to start paying attention to language models and why? I'd say around GPD-2, it started be to become clear that uh, these things were really good and worth paying attention to. So I didn't actually switch over to working on language models at, at that point. Actually, uh, my conclusion at that point was that like unsupervised learning kind of works now that and that uh, training a generative model is a really good way to uh, like create a general, like, like a model with general purpose capabilities that can be fine-tuned for a downstream task. Because at the time I had been really interested in sample efficiency and reinforcement learning. So that's like how fast the model can uh, learn a new task. And then that's, that's in some ways the core problem in reinforcement learning. And maybe even you could say it's the core, one of the core problems in AI. So I was really interested in sample efficiency and uh, GPT-2 came out and uh, GPT-2 could do a lot of things like few shot, meaning you give the model a few examples and it figures it out in context. But there were also a lot of good results with fine-tuning it to do different tasks, like solve all these natural language benchmarks. At the time, I thought that maybe we should train, like for RL, for domains like playing games and for robotics, maybe we should like train video models and then fine-tune them on RL tasks. So I worked on that a bit and, and that kind of worked, but it, it didn't, didn't end up working well enough to get really excited about. But then around GPD-3, I was even more blown away by... Uh, how good GPT-3 was. Then I decided it made sense to pivot my work and my team's work to doing RL on language models. We weren't actually the first ones at OpenAI to do RL on language models, but uh, we decided as the RL team, it made sense for us to go in this direction. So at that time, we started working on like, well, we had two projects. One was around math, solving math problems, and the other was around incorporating retrieval and web browsing uh, and using RL to learn how to use those tools better. So that's how I got it. So I got into language models. I don't remember the exact timeline. That must have been like, yeah, this is probably mid-2019. Now, you made a transition before, during your PhD, you transitioned from being really focused on imitation learning, getting really good results, teaching robots from demonstrations, to then deciding that reinforcement learning would be key to make progress on. Why did you make that transition at the time? Because I think for many researchers, the big question is, are you working on the right thing, right? And especially if you've already invested a bunch of time on one topic, making the decision to transition into a neighboring but new topic is kind of a high cost decision because you'll probably slow down for a while in your output before you start doing the same, reach the same kind of productivity in the new area. So I'm curious about your thought process back then also, even as a PhD student that you already like dare to switch topics in some sense. Yeah, I'd say the switch from working on robotics to working on RL was the biggest switch that I made, except perhaps going into machine learning in the first place. But I'd say um, I'd say that was a big shift because as you remember, I was just playing with toy examples for a long time. For I was playing with like a cart pole and that kind of thing for like six months, but that involved a big leap of faith. I'd say the ones that I've done after that have felt a little smoother and more of a continuous transition, like switching from doing RL on this domain to doing RL on this other domain, 
or like focusing on one problem to another problem. So yeah, yeah, it's always felt pretty natural to do these transitions. And I, th- I think, yeah, I think it was good to, uh, it, it turned out to, to be luck, well, either prescient or lucky to switch to RL at, at the time that I did it. You did some of the first work in combining deep learning with reinforcement learning, at least in the, in the modern era where deep learning really started to work, which is still the work a lot of people build on and use today, including, of course, proximal policy optimization, which is probably the most widely used reinforced learning algorithm still today. I'm kind of curious, as you, as you think back, I mean, it's been a while since you were in your PhD, John, right? It's been seven years by now, probably. But you must remember PhD days. And especially there's the thing that's on a lot of PhD students' minds today, which is industry, especially OpenAI in particular, has a tremendous budget, very large budget, right? The latest investments from Microsoft is a $10 billion investment, which is seemingly largely going to compute and maybe data curation and so forth. That kind of budget is obviously not available in PhD programs, right? And so it seems like some opportunities to make progress in AI exist at OpenAI, but might not exist in PhD programs. Are there still, like from your perspective, being at OpenAI, do you see opportunities to do things that don't require the massive compute and our data budget that are also very exciting? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I see papers from academia that I like occasionally, so it's definitely possible. Yeah, it's a little tricky. You need to figure out some some kind of niche where you're not going to get scooped by industry or, or you're not going to, or actually your work isn't going to be just kind of like obsoleted by uh, some model that gets released. So yeah, you've got to think about that. But um, I think there are plenty of such topics available, whether you're doing some uh, interesting kind of fine tuning or some kind of scientific investigation to understand, understand these models and how they generalize or how to, how to collect, to supervise them better. I'd say there's a lot of opportunity for doing high quality scientific work, like trying to really dig in and understand things. Uh, whereas at an in- industry lab, there might be more of a focus on like on results and on like on just like creating better products. I think there's there's a lot of opportunity to like do things really precisely, be curious and and try to understand things as as a PhD student. Are there examples of things that you would personally be excited about if you had the time to spare? But you know, I guess here, you know already so busy, but they say, wow, these are problems that if I were a PhD student today, I might take on, or is there maybe a process how you would identify such problems? Yeah. Let's see. I don't have a list prepared. Maybe I'd go for the process. Yeah. We can talk about the process instead. Like what are some uh, abilities that uh, I think would be exciting for models to have where there's, um, it's not totally clear how to get there. What are some limitations in how we currently train models? Maybe it doesn't have to be a new capability, like you want the model to do surgery or something, but you want the model, like, it seems bad that we do things this way. Like, it seems bad that we we don't understand, like, where in the data set models capabilities are coming from. So I think this is actually, this is one, like, interesting area. It's like attribution of model behavior to the data set. So there's been some some interesting recent work on this, but I, I think, like, the fact that we um, we pre-train the models and then fine-tune them on these different soups of data and we get something out at the end and we're not sure uh, where all of its behaviors came from, that seems bad. So you, you might have this idea and then, then go back and say, okay, how can we fix that? And then, yeah, then just go from there. Maybe there's a combination of thinking about like future uh, capabilities of interest or thinking about like weaknesses of like current current methods and just trying to 
trying to fix them, and then avoiding things that seem like they're on track to being solved without your help. If we look back at the origins of deep learning with Jeff Hinton, Yosha Benjo, Jan LeCun, working on it for, for many years before it really came to fruition, of course, with, with many collaborators. Do you think it's possible that we're in a local optimum now again? Back then, nobody was working on deep learning except for a few people, and then it broke through. Now everybody's working on these large models trained on large data sets. Like just to say something contrarian, is the future maybe you no know, tiny data sets? Probably not super tiny, but is it possible that there is something else that is yet to be discovered that's yet quite different from what we're doing today? Uh, yeah, I think it's uh, possible and uh, quite likely, in fact. Yeah, who knows? Like, uh, it could be that we can get a lot further with tiny data sets. I think, I mean, humans learn from not from tiny amounts of data. We have high bandwidth of data coming in through our eyes, but like the amount of data that baby sees on diverse data compared to our pre-training data sets, like they're mostly in one house. The fact that you can learn a really good visual system from that is pretty amazing. So I think there's there's a lot that still has yet to be discovered. Yeah, I'd say it's probably the case that there are new, like, new architectures and loss functions uh, that are better than what we have right now. Like there's a temptation to keep pushing on what, what's working and it keeps scaling. But yeah, there still might be a lot out there that we haven't discovered yet. And we, we might be in certain kinds of local optima, but it's hard to predict even where the big breakthroughs might be. Yeah, I guess it's uh, when we talk about Jeff and Joshua and Jan, might be some survivorship bias there. <laughs> the three people yeah. who worked on the right thing that succeeded might be many people who worked on all kinds of other obscure things at the time that, that never saw their time in the, in the light where they get recognized for something important they ended up doing. So it's hard. Now, some people even will argue that today it's, it's hard. I w- wouldn't personally fully agree, but that's saying it's hard to do a PhD and do as interesting work in academia, as you can do in industry, if you can right away go to industry, you can right away have access to the bigger resources and so forth and, and run bigger experiments, at least have more visible results for sure. What were you personally do? Let's let's say you personally graduated from your, you know, you did your undergrad at Caltech before you came to Berkeley for your PhD. If you graduated from Caltech undergrad today, do you think you would explore a PhD or do you think you would try to find a way to jump right into an industrial research lab? Uh, either doing a PhD program or a residency program could be a good start. And I'd say they have their pros and cons. Like a PhD is a longer endeavor. So, but that means you can really become the world expert in something. Yeah. And, and as a PhD student, you can do internships and so forth. So I think that's not a bad, a bad option. As if you go into a residency program, it's, it's going to be a little bit, um, you'll probably have a little bit less freedom and it's, you have less of a runway to just explore different things. So maybe there's a bit of an exploration, exploitation trade off there. So yeah, I'm not sure uh, what I would do. I think both of those would be good options. I'm going to ask you another uh, research advice question, John, because I mean, to me, you still stand out as clearly one of the arguably the most successful PhD student to emerge from my lab. And many new students will ask, well, how did John go about his research? How, you know, literally one of my students asked me, you know, how can it be like John just a few weeks ago? That was that was the actual question. Of like, And I'm like, how am I going to, how do I even tell them how to be like John? I need to ask you the question, you know, what is kind of the approach to research, let's say as a PhD student that you followed and would follow today? What does your schedule look like? What does your trajectory look like in the program? How do you go about it? Uh, well, I was in the right place at the right time. So it's like hard to replicate the uh, exact initial conditions, even if I were to redo it myself. 
I definitely um, like read up on um, if I was working on an area, I'd read up read up on it pretty thoroughly. Like uh, read the papers in that area. Um, I also read a lot of fundamental stuff, like some textbooks on optimization and information theory and stuff. I'd say in terms of the actual problems, I kind of first couple of years, I kind of went with what was going on in the lab and what like you had sort of created some like major thrust for the lab, like around personal robotics and surgical robotics. So I was just kind of goal oriented on those projects and just trying to figure out what was like, let's try to do something cool in one of those areas. And yeah, let's try to do something cool, but let's not just hack it. Let's try to also have some like methods that seem reasonably general. I tried to kind of make a, a natural or some kind of reasonable compromise there because I do think it's good to have um, motivating problems, but then also like those problems aren't necessarily the ones that you're not building a product anyway. Like, like at the end of the day, you're probably not building a useful product. So it's like, you just want those to motivate a good method. So yeah, first couple of years, I just worked on things that I just tried to do like achieve cool things in those domains. Then I guess the, like deep learning started to take off. And I so I had a little bit of a, maybe it had like a mid, mid-life crisis, uh, mid-PhD crisis and just uh, was thinking, oh yeah, everything I'm doing in robotics seems a bit hacky and I'm not sure this stuff is going to work in the long, like be the winning approach in the long run. So, so then I started exploring a little bit more and decided to go into work on deep RL. Yeah, I think that's a kind of natural progression where you start off with doing some like goal-oriented work that's uh, where you're not, you're kind of agnostic about the methods. And then after you've done that for a while, you kind of, you have a sense of what are the limitations of the current paradigm. And then maybe you get you, uh, that gives you a, a good, like good ideas for the next paradigm or for what to do, like for more methods oriented research. Thanks for sharing that, John. Hopefully it can help a lot of people in, in their PhD progression or residency programs and so forth. John, obviously I know you as somebody who works a lot, thinks very deeply, spends a lot of time thinking about AI. Do you ever have time to relax and what do you do? Yeah, I may work a lot, but I'm also sometimes a lazy person and uh, and I have to struggle to uh, get things done. But um yeah, I re- uh, let's see. I've been getting um, into rock climbing lately. So, I mean, still working my way up, but that's been some fun. Yeah, I, I go running. I've done that for a long time. Just uh, kind of just go run around the neighborhood and listen to music. I have chickens in my backyard. They're fun. Yeah, I like music. Uh, play the piano. I, I just went on vacation uh, to Italy. Sounds nice. Yeah, yeah, that was, that was fun. So, hey, John, this was just a fantastic conversation. I really appreciate you making the time. Thanks for joining. Oh, yeah. Thanks for having me. This is great.